So what we're going to see from the text tonight, I think it's two main things, two big things. First of all, if we're going to be the church that God calls us to be, this kind of new community that loves one another, we have to know who we are. The second thing we're going to have to see tonight is that not only do we have to know who we are, but to really experience this new life in community, we have to be who we are. We have to know who we are, and we have to be who we are. Can you imagine for a second if uh, you woke up and you lost virtually all of your memories? Can you imagine that? That's what happened to Sue Meck. I heard her interview on a Diane Reem show podcast earlier this week. She uh, was playing with her infant, uh, or one-year-old, I should know these things, and uh, she was tossing him up in the air, playing with him in a kitchen, it was a low ceiling, and she tossed him up and his fans hit a ceiling, his feet hit a ceiling fan, and he was fine, but the ceiling fan had been poorly hung, so it fell down, hit her on the head, and she fell from there, hit her head on the cabinet, and hit her head on the floor. And when they took her to the hospital, when she woke up, whenever that was later, she had virtually no memory of who she was, uh, where she was, or even much of anything else. She didn't know her name. She didn't know she was a mother. She didn't know how to be a mother. She didn't know how to do simple things like tire shoes, or even most of her vocabulary was missing. And the reality was, because she no longer knew who she was, She could no longer be who she was. And what Paul is going to tell the Ephesians, and what we need to hear tonight, is you've got to know who you are. And he does that in these first seven verses by doing a contrast, by kind of saying, this is who you used to be, which he's already done in chapter 2, but he's doing it again. This is who you used to be. You used to be like all the other people that you live around who don't know Jesus. That's how you used to be. And then, but this is who you are now. And he wants them to see that there's been a change between, in their life between who they were and who they are now. Okay? And you're going to see that, because the way it's broken down, Paul does it by the different uses of uh, pronouns, really. He says, I won't get too grammatical. That's as good as I can go anyways. He's going to say, hey, you, talking to the Ephesians, this is who you are. But he's going to say, they, they, the people that do not know Jesus, who have not yet come to faith in Christ, the people who formerly the Ephesians were among, he said, they have a different kind of life than you do. Let's look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles those Greeks and Romans that were not yet believers, you must not walk like them in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and they're alienated from the life of God. Okay? But if you go on further, he's going to say more. They have become callous. But then in verse 20, but that's not the way you learn Christ. So there's a distinction between who they were before they knew Jesus, people just like the rest of the community they're in, and who they are now. And the distinction, one of the distinctions is they have a futile, the people who do not know Christ live with a futile mind. They live in the futility of their mind. They don't see the way things really are because they don't know God. Okay? And that futility of mind has led to something, it says in verse 18. They are alienated from the life of God. So what is the life, that God, what is the life of God? What does that mean? 
Well, the life of God, Paul's been telling them for the past three chapters, the life of God is life restored to God, a life of forgiveness from God, and a life with God and with his people. That is the life that God gives. It's new spiritual life. It's, it's the life that God gives you when he takes you from being an enemy and a stranger to him and making you a friend and an adopted child. It's that life. That's the life that God gives. And Paul says, you've got to know that. You've got to know the life that God gives. And the reality is that that was the life that we were designed to have all along. We were always designed and created so that we would have fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first story in the Bible, in Genesis, God created people, a man and a woman. He put them in a perfect place so that they would what? They would have fellowship with him so that they would be his people and so that they would have fellowship with one another. And that was supposed to grow and continue. And that plan has not been defeated. It's still the plan today. That is what God has for us as the church, that we would have fellowship with him and that we would have fellowship and encouragement and grow closer to one another. But the problem is that hard hearts and calloused hearts get in the way of that grace and that life. And that's what he tells us in verse 19. He says, they, not talking about the Ephesians, but those that don't yet know Christ, they have become callous and have given themselves up to the sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they don't have the life from God, the life that God gives, but they have the need for that kind of life. But in the hardness of their heart, they refuse to come to him because he would give it to them gladly. And so they, like many of us before we knew Christ, we try to do the best that they can, try to do something to fill that void, so they pursue career, pursue possessions, appearance, pleasure, pursue these things rather than receive the life that God would gladly give to us because their life is incomplete. But Paul says that's not the way you are anymore in verse 20. That's not the way you learn Christ. You have learned him and assuming, and when it says assuming, that to us means something that might be conditional. But for Paul, he meant you most certainly do. Because he's already said God has saved you. He has brought you into fellowship with him in chapter 2. Assuming that you actually know Christ, and you do, you've heard from him. You've been taught in him. You've heard the gospel. You know Jesus. Your life is different. You are not the same person that you are anymore. Because you've heard and believed the gospel, you've put on, in verse 22, you've put off the old self that person that used to be in rebellion to God and who was a stranger to God, and you've put on the new self, that person who's been recreated in the image of God's righteousness and holiness. So you, Ephesians, you people of the church, us, you've got to know that you're new. You have a new identity, so therefore, you can't live like you used to anymore. You can't pursue the things that you used to pursue to try to fill your life with meaning. We must look to God and pursue love of one another. So you have a new life. That's the first thing that Paul says. You've got to know it. You are a new people. You're no longer slaves to sin anymore. Now you have been brought together as God's people. But then the second thing he tells us is not only do you have to know who you are, but you've got to be who you are. You've got to be who you are. Our community and every church community needs to be characterized by at least these five things that Paul tells us. He says you're going to have to be a community characterized by truthfulness. A community that knows how to handle anger. 
and yet not sin. A community that is generous with one another. One that is gracious, and then finally one that is hospitable. These are the characteristics and qualities that we must have in our church if we're actually going to love one another and grow to be more like Jesus. This is what we must have. So let's start with uh, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Paul could have said a lot of, he could have given us a lot of other reasons why we have to speak the truth, right? Um, lying is bad, and God doesn't approve of lying. That, and that's true, and that's a good reason not to lie. Lying will get you in trouble with the authorities and your parents. That's also true. But that's not what Paul says. What does Paul say? Don't lie to one another because you belong to one another. Don't lie to one another because you are members of the same body of one another. And you know, because uh, if you've lived any period of time at all, that lying destroys community. Uh, I'm a dad. I have four kids. I shouldn't use myself as an example when they're here. But, uh, you know, if my daughter comes in, not saying this has ever happened, and she says, did you eat the last chocolate chip cookie that mom had saved for me and labeled Kate? Did you eat that cookie? I have a choice to make. (laughs) I can lie. No, I didn't eat that cookie. I can lie. And if I lie then um, if she doesn't detect my deception, I have harmed community. Why? Because I have now saddled myself with the burden of maintaining the lie, which is going to create distance between me and between her. And I've done something else. I've also deceived her as to the true nature of who I am. She needs to know that sometimes I'm a selfish little son of a gun that eats little girls' cookies. (laughs) That's who I am because I want to be loved for who I am, right? And I need the grace and forgiveness that she could give to me in Christ by confessing, yes, I did eat the cookie, right? But if she detects the lie, that's going to diminish our relationship as well. Even if she doesn't detect it, what is she going to think? I live in a community where no cookies are safe because it could have been anyone, my dad, my mom, and I'll never know, right? Lying destroys community. That's a little funny, but it's true. Lying destroys community. So, if we're going to be a community that loves one another so that we can experience the grace and healing and love of God and become more like Jesus, then we have to be a truthful community. Okay? But that's not the only thing he says. Paul also says, we've got to be a community that knows how to be angry and yet not sin. And I think for some of us, uh, that's going to be surprising that you could possibly be angry and not sin. Okay? But that's what Paul says. You've got to learn to be a community who can be angry and in your anger not sin. Okay? Not all anger is wrong, but even right anger has to be handled rightly. Or it will fester and corrupt and it will destroy community. So look at verse 25, or sorry, 26. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. And Paul doesn't give us a lot of guidelines for how to know when anger is righteous in this case and when it's not. Um, He gives us a little bit of help, but not a whole lot. But I I could suggest to you, I I read an article or a a journal uh, by a guy named Richard Keyes who talks about being human. And in that, he discusses righteous anger 
and what it looks like for Christians to, to be angry and not sin. And he says, when we're thinking through our anger, we need to think through these three things. Number one, what's, what's the cause for our anger? Are, are we angry about something that, that God says is wrong? Are we angry about something that God would be angry about? And that's not as hard to detect when we're talking about our friends. You know, we can look at their lives and say, I don't think God would be angry about that. <laughs> or, yeah, that was wrong. But when it's our own lives, we have to be cautious. Because then we have so many other factors coming in pride. Our, our own lack of knowledge of ourselves and lack of knowledge of the situation. So, we ask the question, this is something that God would be angry about. The second thing, the quality of our anger. What type of anger am I experiencing here? Okay? Is my anger, um, am I angry because wrong was done and I want to seek the redress of that wrong? I want to seek correction? I want to seek restoration? Or do I want to destroy this other person? Maybe destroys a little strong. Do I just want to punish the other person? Not many of us probably want to at least overtly destroy someone. But we all know what it's like to want to punish someone with our anger. So we've got to think through that. Is the cause just? Is the quality of our anger right? And then lastly, how have we expressed our anger? Because we can be good on the first two and then blow it at the end. You know, the right word at the wrong time is not good. The wrong word at any time is not good, right? But we can blow up in our anger. So we have to think about how am I expressing it? Is it self-controlled? Is my anger seeking correction? And am I holding on to it only for an appropriate time? Because what does Paul say? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I grew up, and I think it's still a good principle that you shouldn't go to bed angry. That was kind of how we grew up in our family. I think that's true sometimes, but sometimes it's wise to actually go to sleep and calm down a little bit and don't be unrighteous in your anger. So I think what Paul is getting here, and I was helped by some commentaries a little bit, is that sundown was the time in which any worker in that time period would have to be paid his wage. If he was a day laborer or she was a day laborer, you could not hold on to your wage any longer than sundown, right? Because that was the appropriate amount of time. And what Paul's saying, I believe, is that don't hold on to this anger any longer than is appropriate, considering the quality considering the reason for it, considering how you're going to express it and what you're seeking. Don't hold on to anger any longer than you should. Now, certainly there might be some things that we would hold on to anger. Uh, Racism. uh, Many other things that have enduring societal consequences. But then we think about our cookie example, and we think, how long should Kate stay mad at me (laughs) about eating her cookie? (laughs) We'll talk later. Okay. (laughs) And the reason, why is the reason? We are to be a community that cares about what God cares about. We get angry about what God gets angry about, but we don't hold on to that anger too long because even righteous anger, when we hold on to it too long, allows a foothold or an opportunity for the devil to come in, our enemy, who does not want us to experience human flourishing together in the community that God has made, can come in and corrupt even right anger. So we don't hold on to it too long. We only hold on to it as long as it's appropriate. All right. Thirdly, we have to be a community. You think I'm going to say a community that's of former thieves, because that's the next verse. 
Let me read that. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. But the way I would characterize it is we've got to be a community that's characterized by generosity. Generosity. You know, um, I don't know if there was an influx of thieves in Ephesus when Paul planted the church, or as the church grew. I don't know. I do know that the church is the one place where a thief can come and find a new life. So maybe there was lots of thieves in Ephesus and in the churches around. Maybe the church might be a place where a thief might initially come in to spy things out, because people would be sharing and generous. But either way, Paul says, the thief has to stop stealing. But here's the reason. He's got to be generous because we have to be a community of generosity where we actually work with our hands to share with anyone in need. Now, I I tried to teach my kids this a month ago as I was kind of getting ready for this sermon. And I talked to them about being a thief is always selfish. It's always about yourself. And that's when one of my kids, the one who's having a birthday today, he said, what about Robin Hood? And I said... Unless you're Robin Hood, all other thieving (laughs) is about selfishness. So unless you are representing the oppressed presence in the name of the true king and oppressing the pretender to the throne, stop stealing and be generous. And there's a lot of ways we could steal, right? It's not about money. We could steal reputation. We could steal many other things. Be generous with what God has given you. Work and be generous. That's the kind of community we must have. Fourthly, we've got to be a community that's gracious. Uh, One of our doctors, and she's not here tonight, but one of our doctors told me about uh, a man that she met when she was on a mission trip back before she'd even gone to medical school. I think it's because Luke asked, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Which I didn't really want to hear, but I couldn't leave. So I heard it anyway. And uh, she said, what, what's, he said, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And so she told about uh, a man that she saw down, I don't remember where, it was outside the U.S., and he had a fungal infection in his foot. And it had basically eaten away much of his foot and through much of his foot, and it was continuing to spread slowly up his leg. And if he didn't get real treatment where they cleaned out all the fungal infection and real antibiotics, ultimately it was going to take over his body or he was going to die from some type of whole systemic infection. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, systemic infection in the body. He was going to die. And Paul says that our words can be like that fungal infection that can corrupt the whole body. So we've got to be gracious. Let's read verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So as we think about our words, we want no rotten talk in our community. Why? Because it destroys the community. So we'll certainly have problems with one another as we get to know one another. I know as you get to know me, you'll have problems. That's just the way it goes. But we will be misunderstood at times, or we might actually sin against one another. We might be, be um, hard to one another, harsh. And when that happens, what are we going to do? We have a choice. We can go to one another, or we can talk to other people. It's not that we would want to ignore 
a real wrong or a problem. It's that we want not to have corrupting speech or rotten talk come out of our mouths. You know? But instead, we want to speak only what would be gracious, what would be building up to the community. Only what is building up to the community. We want to build health and life together. So no corrupting talk, Paul says. We must be gracious. Fifthly, and almost lastly, we have to be a community that's hospitable. Let me read verse 31. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I'm sorry. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But be kind to one another. It doesn't say but. I added that. Sorry. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Listen to those words. Bitterness, wrath, anger. And this is unrighteous anger. Clamor, slander, and malice. If you were a kid and you had to draw a picture of that, what would you draw? Like, I, I was thinking about that. What, how, what kind of place is that? A place of anger and malice and or clamor, wrath. I'd, What kind of place is that? I kind of think it would be like a desert. A place that is hard to sustain life. You know, everything is trying to get you. Everything is poisonous, in my mind at least. Uh, Everything is sharp and pokey. Nowhere to rest. And just getting by in life would be hard. And Paul says, you need, that's an inhospitable climate. Not a place you want to live. But we're called to, to be in the church hospitable. To be a community that invites life. Invites life. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you, hospitable, sustaining life. If you think about it, Paul's not saying forgive one another because, um, because you really like that person. They're kind of cool, so forgive them. He's not saying uh, forgive because um, you would like what that person could do for you. So let's forgive. Um, He's not even saying forgive so that you can be a part of the community. He's saying forgive because you have been forgiven. And, uh, you know, we can turn forgiveness into a work or a meritocracy or a transaction, just like we can turn love into a transaction. I realized that the other day because I make smoothies for Rachel sometimes in the morning. Sorry, Ray. I wasn't supposed to. And uh, she likes me to make those. And she feels loved when I make those. But when I'm frustrated or angry with her, I don't want to make those. And so I had to think, why am I. But I still sometimes make them, sometimes I don't. You know? But why do I make them? Do I make them so that she will feel loved, so that she will later be nice to me? Or do I make them. Because God loves me and he calls me to love her. See, the thing about the transactional approach to love and forgiveness is that at some point you're going to reach a a deficit where the other person's ability to merit your love or forgiveness will, will not be there anymore. 
And so Paul says, I want you to fix your attention on the unending supply of love and grace and forgiveness that you've gotten in Jesus Christ when you were thinking about how we're going to love one another. So if we're going to be a community where people experience real life and are healed and grace and we grow together, where we actually really will risk knowing one another, if we're going to be that kind of community, then, then we've got to look to Jesus as the source of our love and forgiveness for one another. We've got to be a place that's hospitable. Let's not create a desert in our church. Okay? And lastly, lastly, Paul kind of gives us a general instruction. It's not quite as specific as the other ones, but he ties it all together. This is what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offer and a sacrifice to God. So Paul ties it all together, what we are to do with who we are. Imitate God. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Like that's a degree. Like to that same degree that Christ willingly gave himself for us, you should and we, I should walk together in love. Okay? And why? Because you're beloved children. That's who you are. We're the church rescued from a life of independence and rebellion against God to a life of dependence and grace with God and with one another together. We're as children. So that's why we walk in love. Uh, my papa was a big guy. I think his hands were like this big. Maybe not quite that big, but they were big. Huge hands. I, he let me play with his ring. I, I'm not kidding you. It had to be that, that big. I don't know. It was big. It's like one-inch pipe. And, um, but he was a very kind man. Very kind. Um, I've heard my aunt say that many times. I know after he died, many years after that, Rachel and I were talking. She said, he always made me feel welcome, like a part of the family. Just very kind. And my grandma used to tell me the story when I was little about my mom and my grandpa. She told me they had a dairy out near Floresville, and my mom always wanted to be with my dad. And so she would go outside, and my grandma would say, if Papa hit his head on a board, your mom would hit her head on a board. She wanted to be just like him. If Papa stepped in the cow flop, your mom would step in the cow flop on purpose. She wanted to be just like him. And do you know why? I I thought it was funny then. I didn't know. And my grandma, I couldn't tell if she was exaggerated or not, but I, I think I know why now. So my mom wanted to be with my grandpa because she knew how great his love was for her. And she wanted to be just like him. Do you know the love of your Heavenly Father? Do you know the forgiveness and the price of that forgiveness that He's given to you in Jesus Christ? Paul says, you're God's children. This is how much He loves you. So be just like Him to one another. Let's pray. Ah, Heavenly Father, you are good to us. You are good to us on cold days and hot days and every day in between. And you have loved us before we even knew you. So Lord, I pray tonight that um, you would stir our hearts to a greater sense of how good your love is for us. 
and how deeply you care for us. I pray that you would stir us to a deeper sense of our own rebellion against you and how you have dealt with that in Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's people here tonight that don't know you as a father, that uh, they would want to, that you would draw them to you and that they would um, that they'd stick around maybe and ask some questions and that they would talk to you about how they could possibly know you. And I pray for, for those of us that do know you that we would just be um, encouraged as we go through the week to, um, to live in this new way of life, this new community that you've given us, this place that's called Christ Church. Amen.